This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Aaron, let me just give you this thought. There is no excuse to give your home address to a serial killer. I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours, and this is my life of crime. And I have this life because of all of you. All of you who are devoted to, drawn to, fascinated by, and addicted to true crime. BTK. Those initials haunted Wichita, representing a phantom killer who had never been caught. Now, I get true crime. I mean, we're looking at whodunits and why did they do it? And that all makes sense to me. But what doesn't make sense to me, what I don't understand at all, is Hollywood horror. I don't understand why people write, make, and watch Horror films. Slasher films. Gory, scary films. Think about it. Aren't there enough boogeymen already? I mean, there are serial killers. There are terrorists. And here's the part that really baffles me. We don't just watch it. We pay to watch it. Hollywood horror has never been hotter. So I decided I'd ask one of those horror writers to join me. But before you meet him, you're going to hear a little bit of his work. This is a portion of a film that ran at Sundance. He edited it, and it's called The Legend of Beaver Dam. No one-armed ghost of Beaver Dam who dares to say his name three times tonight. In the film, a camp counselor teases a bunch of kids sitting around a campfire with a song about a killer ghost that comes to life if you say his name three times. If you do, he'll come for you and kill you with his knife. Okay, okay, so 
you're going to have to first introduce yourself. Okay. Well, uh, I'm Nick Mazurka. I'm a, uh, a writer, uh, editor, sometimes producer of, uh, I guess, primarily horror films, but sometimes other things too. Were you offended when I said I don't understand the whole concept of not only making horror, but paying to see it? I'm not offended at all. I mean, uh, why do we seek out things that scare us? It's, it seems strange. Well, that's what it used to be. Today, people are actually paying and paying a lot. You have Jordan Peele, who's made his name on Get Out and Us. But you also, you had Halloween. They brought in a 60-year-old actress, and it was a hot movie, Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis. That's true. It's what's made horror so hot suddenly. Well, it's interesting. Um, in my opinion, I think what's happened with horror recently is that it's kind of gentrified a bit. Uh, I think gentrified. Yeah, I think horror has moved a bit up market. This this latest uh, sort of trend now is is what they call social horror. It's horror, but you have a sense of you've learned something about perhaps the racial or socioeconomic realities of America, right? So there's something sort of socially uh, redeeming but about the, the darkest side of it, the darkest side of that. Well, yes, in a sense, but also sort of uh, seeing something that appeals to something very basic. Um, it, it goes back to something that is uh, a fear that you have in your dreams when you're a child, um, late at night, you're f afraid of the dark, you're afraid of uh, strangers, you're afraid of uh, things that could happen to you. And in a horror movie, it takes you back to that in a very concrete way. All right, so I know that you went to college and you went to graduate school. I mean, to be a horror film writer, I mean, what does your mother think of this? Uh, I, I think she's a little baffled by it. I, I think uh, I think she's a little confused, to be honest. <laughs> really? Do you think so? Do you think maybe that's why she's asked you to sit right across from her at the uh, at the uh, mic to explain why you're doing horror? It's the only reason I can think of. I mean, maybe a psychoanalyst would uh, be able to shed more light on it. But I, yes, I would imagine that you must be confused by what I do. So the jig is up. Okay, so there is a reason why I asked this particular young man. He has a different last name than I do. Yes, it's Nicholas Mazurka, but he happens to be, he's related to me. He is my son, and clearly it's a little difficult for me to, to do this interview impartially. And so I have asked another member of my family. This is, of course, my work family, my colleague in crime, Richard Schlesinger, to help me delve into the whole question of horror versus true crime and what have we gotten ourselves into? I got dragged into this huge trick that you're playing on your <laughs> listeners willingly. It's nice to see you, Nicholas. Aaron, we've known each other for what, 30 years? Maybe a little longer? Because it was we knew each other before 48 Hours started. So let's say 35 years. You know I love you, like a sister. I, too, have known Nick for many years, since you were at least five. You've aged reasonably well. Thank you. Better than most of the characters in your movies. We, we really wanted to talk to you because you know, your mother and I both were curious about this sort of nexus between the popularity of true crime and the growing popularity of horror. How did you get attracted to the horror genre? You could have made 
rom-coms. You could have made yeah, could romance, pieces. Romance. <laughs> well, there, there are sort of both, I guess, cynical reasons and uh, uh, interesting aesthetic reasons. Uh, the cynical reason is that, as as anyone in Hollywood will tell you, oh, horror movies. Well, you can; those are good because you can make them very cheaply, and people love them. But what's interesting to me about horror movies is that it gets at stuff that uh, is is deeply repressed. There was a film that you did called Monstergram. Now, describe what that is. Isn't that kind of like it's a look at modern day life with this horror aspect? Yeah. Traditionally in horror, you have to put people in a very remote location for things to start to be scary because when we're surrounded by uh, things like cell phones and ways and 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 uh, Uber drivers, we can uh, we can get away from danger very quickly. So we've been trying to do some things that get at what can scare people in modern technology. And it's called Monstagram, right? That's right. Don't move. No smile. Oh, that is so cute. I'm gonna post it. So what happens in Monstagram is. There's a little boy taking a bath, and his mother takes a picture of him, posts it to social media. You shouldn't post that. Hmm? If you post it, he's going to come for you. The kid knows that something terrible is going to happen. The mother doesn't, and it doesn't end well for the mother. <laughs> Monstagram is more about, um, and I think many horror films are about, your secret fantasies, like things that are repressed, that uh, things that are so terrible that you keep under wraps. In this case, the child is actually not upset when his mother dies at the end of the short. He's very excited and happy that Monstagram has come to sort this situation out for him because of his repressed anger um, that his mother is sharing pictures of him on social media. So did uh, you think that your exposure being raised in a house with a true crime reporter, your exposure close up and personal to real life horror affected your choice of career, young Nicholas? <laughs> it's, uh, it would seem ridiculous to deny it. Uh, it seems, seems like an obvious connection. I mean, uh, my mother would come home uh, and, and we'd be eating dinner and she would say to us, Hey, who wants to hear about John oh. Benet Ramsey? Oh, come on! It wasn't quite that bad. It oh, just... I bet it was. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not, but it was so much a part of my life. I hate to say it. I mean, because I've been doing true crime all your life. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx Service Guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. And so let us let us show you one of the stories that that uh, your mother did. Uh, it was uh, what year was this, Erin? The, the the it was the in search for nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. How old were you in nineteen ninety, Nick? Nineteen ninety. I let was six years mother. old. You were, you were six years old. Six years old. Well, 
on Mother's Day weekend in 1990, and I don't think you'll remember this, but I was asked to leave on Mother's Day weekend to go to Clovis, New Mexico to cover a story where a six-year-old boy by the name of Matthew, who looked just like you, Nick, was missing. When you're six and I have to then go cover um, a missing child, I'm going to, I mean, I remember I would come home and your life would change a bit. Well, yeah, but my memory of it, and I don't remember the specifics of any of these uh, missing kids, but what I remember is that you would say, okay, uh, you're not allowed to play in uh, the trunks of old cars. Oh, come on. No, I never said that, did I? You did. And I was like, well, we live in Manhattan. It's not really an option, but okay, if I happen to see an old rusted car in a field, then I won't climb into the trunk. Well, let me explain why. Because, in fact, that's where this young man was found. So that was a horrible thing. We stayed covering that story for weeks. You know, everyone thought he'd been kidnapped. It's interesting because, you know, I'm not a parent. You are, so these stories hit you a lot differently than they hit me. Oh, the worst then, we did Lewis Lent. Um, I think it was... Four years later, and that's the time when I learned, so Nick was about 10, 11, I learned that uh, the the age where children are most often kidnapped, boys, is 11, 12. And how old was Nick at the time? He was like 10, 11. It was, that's frightening. It was. Lewis Lent was a serial killer. Lewis Lent, you know, targeted children. And so that was a very frightening story to me. Lewis Lent was arrested here in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, after police say he tried to abduct 12-year-old Becky Savarese. All right, that was 1994 in Pittsfield, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, in a town where everyone told me nothing terrible happens. And here is a 12-year-old little boy who disappears. And you've got a you've got a son at home roughly the same age. Right. And so how do you? I mean, you want to keep that separate. You don't want him to have the fears you have, but so it's So did you bring those fears home? I think I probably did. You can't cover those stories without taking some of that home. I don't know how you avoid so it. So what happened when you got home? Well, and I I'm, I'm leading you shamelessly into telling a story. It was around 1994, 95, and you were, uh, we were all in Central Park, your father and me. We were riding our bicycles. What happened? Do you remember what happened? Oh, I remember well, yeah. Well, I I was riding my bike, and I don't think I was paying attention to my surroundings. I was just sort of in that trance, and and I was riding and riding and riding, and then suddenly I realized uh, my parents had disappeared. So, Aaron, what were you thinking? Nick is gone. He's gone. I can't see him anywhere. And I turn to my husband. I go, Jim, where's Nick? And he goes, I don't know. You know, he's fine. And I go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Within moments, I had organized, I'm not kidding, a posse. We were going to go look for him because the one thing that had stayed in my head was it. you have to act immediately. You have to act immediately. If your child's taken, those first few minutes matter more than anything. I was like, I, he, where was he? he? He had to have been taken. You went right to that. I did, right away. And, of course, Nick 
was how someone found you, right? Someone a, a psych- Someone was passing by where I was stopped by the side of the road, and they say, "I, I think your parents are uh, looking for you." And I said, "Okay, uh, they're they're that way." And he's like, "Yeah," and yes, I I it couldn't have been very far. Like it was it was a tenth of a mile, if that. And I I just go back, and yes, there's a crowd. Uh, they're sobbing in the center of it. People are forming sub-parties within the main search party. They're going out in all directions, and then suddenly everyone sees me, this crowd of what, it was like 50 people, and they all freak out. Yeah. And I was just around the corner. I mean, it was... I was crying, and I remember this very kind woman because I was so embarrassed, too. I was mortified that I had done this, and I was sobbing. And she goes, you did the right thing, honey. What if he had been taken... But Nick did not speak to me all the way home. He were you, was. Were you mad? Yeah, yeah. I I thought it was a bit of an overreaction. I think at at that age, especially when at that age you're also very uh, sensitive to uh, how you appear to others, to embarrassment. Uh, it was it was embarrassing. I think. Richard, remember, I mean, and anyone who's followed 48 Hours, we don't just go on a story for a day. So we get, we stay with people all day, these family members who have lost kids, all of that. You don't realize how much that just becomes, it's that family's burden, it becomes yours. And you can't fake that. You can't go into someone's home and say, oh, I'm so sorry you lost your child. You are sitting right across from them and they are... They are experienced the worst thing a parent could experience. You are feeling it with them. What, you think you drop that off in Pittsfield, Massachusetts and leave that behind you? You bring it back home. What I do wonder is, what is a steady diet of this true crime? If it affects me like this, how does it affect someone who lives in the same house? How, you know, people who watch every single Saturday, does that make them... Does that make them feel more comfortable when they see that so many times these these murder cases are solved and that person who kills her or her husband or his wife um, usually get caught? And does that make people feel safer or over a period of time do they end up like me um, feeling like the world is an unsafe place? But looking back, I mean, did you have a sense that the world was a dangerous place? It never felt like it was to me. Um, personally, but I don't think I ever felt deeply unsafe, like I was scared to leave the house. What she says is true. I mean, you know, your mother and I have been doing this for, what, 30 years now? And uh, it's easy to get a skewed view of the world. Right, right. Well, I mean, but that's, it's interesting. You guys really do absorb the collective anxiety of the country. Now I'm going to the case of BTK. And BTK, when we when we were earlier talking about the intersection between true crime and horror, to me, those are one and the same when it comes to BTK. And BTK, for those of you old enough to remember, um, was uh, was the the nickname given to a serial killer. And he had that name before anyone knew who he was. Um, he sort of gave it to himself. It, right. And he did. He called himself. That's right. And it was... It's a horrible thing. It's BTK. He was in Wichita, Kansas, and it stood for bind them, torture them, kill them. He was the BTK killer. December 1977. 
BTK bound and strangled 25-year-old Nancy Fox and added a twist. He reported the murder to police himself. You will find a homicide. Then the killer sent a chilling letter to a local TV station that read in part, how many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? And he, he was able to kill a number of women over the years because he was this harmless looking dog catcher. And then they caught him. And I was covering that story. I wanted to be the first person to get an interview with him. Who didn't? Who, who didn't in our business not want to talk to BTK, whose real name was Dennis Rader? And I would go see him every, not every day, but like frequently in the prison where he was, jail, where he was sitting awaiting trial. And I would try to get an interview with him. I would meet with him. And he won, at one point said, um, I do artwork. And um, I said, would you send me some of your artwork? And he goes, yeah, but I won't send it to, to your office. I'll only send it to your home. And so sadly, I have to report that I gave a serial killer our home address. Yeah, that was a good idea. But it was all really in the interest of work. And it honestly was. I wanted that artwork that Dennis Rader did, and it did appear as part of my piece. And, of course, I don't remember you how you found that? out, Nick. How did you find out? I think I saw a letter from him on the uh, on the table, and I think I said, well, who's this? Because it had the, you know, all the address, that all the stuff that's added on when you send a letter from inside prison. And I think I said, uh, who is this? Then you explain it. And I said, okay, so let me get this straight. You, you gave a serial killer our home address for correspondence. I think you were pretty angry with me, but my argument was, well, honey, we do have a doorman. Right, and then I, <laughs> then I pictured our doorman being sort of strung up in the, in the elevator shaft. I knew for a fact that BTK, Dennis Rader, was never getting out. Aaron, can, let me just enter, let me just give you this thought. There is no excuse to give your home address. Yes, I to know, a serial killer. I know. With a, with, there's just, I'm sorry, you can, you can, you can try and justify it. Nicholas is grinning over here. He knows. We all know, Aaron. You don't know, but we know. There's no, there's no reason to give your address to a serial. It's killer. funny because we're harping on the the kind of messed up things about uh, my upbringing, or may appear messed up to people hearing it from the outside. No matter what you do, you you uh, you're. What you do in life, what the way you are, you affect your children in some way. And the thing that I think about uh, my upbringing, uh, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. And and what I took away from my mother, aside from all of the things that probably do affect what I do, is honestly is her work ethic and and the the way that she's so involved with these stories, and particularly the way that she does interviews and the way that she. Uh, uh, talks to people in the way that people, they just want to tell her things. And uh, I think that's uh, really inspiring and interesting. And that's something that I've, I've, uh, I've tried to live up to. You've come a long way since you were five. Thank you. And I'm Erin Moriarty, 48 Hours. And that's my life of crime. And it's Richard Schlesinger's life of crime. This podcast series is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio. Judy Tigart is our executive producer. Nancy Kramer, our executive story editor. Mike Fillet, the series producer editor. 
This episode was produced by Luis Geraldo and Mark Goldbaum. Morgan Canty is our associate producer. Craig Swagler is the vice president and general manager of CBS News Radio. Charles E. Pavlunas is the executive vice president of business development and the CFO of CBS News. And then to our special guests, Nick Mazurka and Richard Schlesinger, it was amazing to have you in the studio. Finally, a shout out to you, our fans. We owe it all to you, the millions of fans of 48 Hours in the U.S. and around the world. Don't forget to join me online. I am at EF Moriarty on Twitter, and we are at 48 Hours on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Tune in to CBS News every Saturday night at 10 p.m. Eastern as we begin, believe it or not, our 33rd season of Crime and Justice original reporting on 48 Hours. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.